0: I have some news to share regarding the Canada-U.S. border. Over the past few days, I've spoken to President Trump about what we can do to slow the spread of COVID-19. Deputy Prime Minister Freeland has been in touch with Vice President Pence and Secretary Pompeo. I just spoke to President Trump again this morning, and we have agreed that both Canada and the United States will temporarily restrict all non-essential travel across the Canada-U.S. border. Travelers will no longer be permitted to cross the border for recreation and tourism. You'll remember those words from Prime Minister Trudeau back at the height of the beginning of the pandemic back in March of 2020, uh, announcing the temporary closure of the U.S.-Canada border for all but essential goods vehicles in an attempt to slow the spread of COVID-19. You'll remember back to those days that travel restrictions, border closures, all of it was hotly debated. It was much talked about. It was unprecedented, to use that word again tonight. Um, and the issue of travel restrictions became a very hot topic. Did we act fast enough? Were they effective? Who should we target? Which country should be targeted? Which ones shouldn't be? Were the exemptions too widespread? The first national-level genomic analysis of COVID-19 epidemiology in Canada now has some answers. Researchers have found that Canada's restrictions on international travel drastically reduced the number of COVID-19 cases entering the country during the first waves of the pandemic. But this is an important but: they were insufficient to prevent new outbreaks later. So how did they figure figure that out? And what lessons? can we learn from it? Joining me now is the lead author of that research. Angela McLaughlin is a PhD candidate in the Department of Bioinformatics at the University of British Columbia and a research assistant at the BC Centre for Excellence in HIV AIDS at St. Paul's Hospital. Thank you so much for your time.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: This has been a much talked about issue since the very beginning of the pandemic, travel restrictions, when to put them in, were they put in fast enough and so on. Uh, What did you set out to find?
1: Yeah, so we sort of set out to find whether or not these travel restrictions were effective towards reducing the introductions of SARS-CoV-2, the virus which causes COVID-19, into Canada. And we did this by leveraging publicly available virus genetic sequences um, in order to sort of reconstruct the early dynamics of the pandemic.
0: Um, so what did you end up finding? Because it is fascinating what uh, you found sort of a uh, really a tale of tale of two different responses or two different impacts of these restrictions?
1: Mm -hmm. So we did find that the March 2020 restrictions effectively reduced importations about tenfold within four weeks. And this was also coinciding with other non-pharmaceutical interventions, as you recall, including lockdown, et cetera. So overall, all of these restrictions taken together did reduce introductions pretty effectively. And it kept them at a low level through the spring and summer of 2020. But these low level of ongoing introductions did eventually seed new outbreaks in Canada, which replaced those early uh, circulating sublineages, um, despite having similar transmissibility. So while we had an effective uh, response from the travel restrictions, it's also possible that they weren't quite enough to reduce the new seedings.
0: So one of the interesting things you found is where it was coming from. And uh, not that it's a huge surprise, given our land border with the United States and and how much cross-border travel there is, Uh, but you found even in those early days that a majority of the cases were coming from uh, from the U.S.
1: Yeah, in the first wave, we found that about just under 50% of the sublineages or outbreaks had originated from the U.S., um, a, along with contributions from other countries in Europe and uh, a little bit from Asia as well. And this was also the case in the second wave, which was um, in the fall of 2020. The U.S. contributed about 43% of the outbreaks of that wave uh, with a larger contribution from India and the U.K.
0: Did that come as any kind of surprise to you when you were uh, when you were looking into to the data?
1: I mean, not really, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, you know, we have a very tight trade and social relationship with the USA, as well as the world's longest land border at just under 8900 kilometers. And, you know, despite having these restrictions on land and air travel internationally, there were still a lot of exemptions for, um, you know, professionals who work as drivers or crew diplomats, etc. And at that time, uh, we didn't have access to rapid tests, and especially early on, we didn't even have access to vaccination. uh, it, it led to a situation where there was porosity in the border and uh, we inadvertently allowed for new outbreaks to be seeded.
0: Yeah, so tell me how that works because the, um, the restrictions worked in at least reducing the amount of new cases coming or the amount of, of the virus coming into the country, but it had already settled itself. And, and there's a distinction there, I think, that that's probably pretty important. Once it gets into the community and there's community spread, uh, it's very tough for any restriction. To prevent it from continuing, obviously,
1: to an extent, but it's not a, you know, black or white situation. There's definitely Mm -hmm. a lot of gray area there where you can imagine, you know, we have all these distinct communities across Canada. And although perhaps, you know, early on, we did have, um, you know, quite a bit of seeding into new communities and circulation of these early sublineages we, by having restrictions, prevented new communities from being seeded and from new outbreaks or new variants um, from being seeded in, which may have been more transmissible. And of course, the variants of concern, which usually do have heightened transmissibility, they they didn't emerge and they weren't um, introduced until the fall and winter of 2020. But even still, we did have new introductions coming in that were able to replace those early circulating sublineages.
0: And what did you find with, with, because I guess in some senses, and this may be the incorrect term, but there was sort of a law of diminishing returns on these restrictions. How did that work?
1: Mm -hmm. Well, we didn't explicitly model it as like sort of a a log, logarithmic relationship, but we sort of were able to sort of, with our conclusion, suggest that there is a diminishing return. So restrictions are most effective uh, when the domestic prevalence is low, Um, and also when there are too many exemptions, they're not as effective either. But you can imagine, so in a situation where you have really high prevalence, say during the Delta wave, for instance, there was a lot of circulating uh, COVID at that time, You know, maybe at that time, it's not as effective to have restrictions that are preventing new Delta sublineages of similar transmissibility from coming in because it was already so widespread. So it, it is a very uh, sort of dynamic relationship
0: and yet it is a difficult choice for uh, for policymakers right when to lift and when not to lift and how how effective uh, these these measures are because they do come with a co- they do come with costs that are outside of do. public health e- yeah.
1: economic costs social costs for families who are across the border you know all these travel plans that people have to continually be changing um, so this is just the public health perspective i would say on this issue of course, a policymaker would have to weigh all of these competing interests. And I think to the the public health perspective, having um, ongoing and timely genomic surveillance of what variants are in Canada, where they are, how they're spreading can give us just as much resolution as possible into uh, the perspective of, do we need these restrictions? Are they going to be effective?
0: Did did you have enough data? Because one of the complaints I always hear is that uh, because there wasn't a lot of testing going on and then there hasn't been a whole lot of testing going on, at least not public testing, uh, that we don't really have a clear idea of where, of, at least recently, more where this is moving around to and how it's moving around.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, that's been definitely a challenge of you know the whole field of genomic epidemiology because not all people who become infected are even tested or know they're positive. And then among those who have been tested, the majority do not have a viral sequence representing their infection. So with the data that we use from this study, this is uh, viral sequences from across Canada, as well as from around the world. Um, We, I think we estimated that it represented about 2% of the cases that had been confirmed positive diagnoses. Um, And there also were sometimes differences across provinces in terms of how many sequences were available, over time. So, you know, we tried to normalize the data by subsampling a little bit, but there are always going to be um, some, some missing spaces where you sort of have to fill in the blanks a little bit.
0: My guest this half hour is Angela McLaughlin. She's a PhD candidate in the Department of Bioinformatics at the University of British Columbia and a research assistant at the BC Centre for Excellence in HIV-AIDS at St. Paul's Hospital. We're talking about some work she and a team have done uh, on uh, the impact of travel restrictions on the spread of COVID-19 in Canada. It found that early on, restrictions on international travel did in fact drastically reduce the number of COVID-19 cases entering the country during those early waves of the pandemic, but were not sufficient to prevent new outbreaks over time. When we come back, just what we've learned and how it can be applied in the future? Because we really went into this pandemic uh, blind in many ways to what kind of impacts uh, a global world where we had a lot of open borders and a lot of people circulating around. What kind of impact uh, restrictions would have in in uh, on the movement of a virus in this uh, in these times? And now we have a better idea. We'll find out how we'll put those to use after this. My guest is Angela McLaughlin. She's a PhD candidate in the Department of Bioinformatics at the University of British Columbia. We're talking about some research her team has done, she and uh, a group of others has done on uh, how effective travel restrictions were on preventing the spread or at least the entry of COVID-19 into this country. Um, what I remember from the outset of the pandemic was that although we'd often talked about how quickly a virus can move around the world and infectious diseases in, in general can move around the world given uh, you know the global age we live in, that there wasn't a whole lot of you know, there wasn't a whole lot of recent, there wasn't much we could point to. We had never really lived through a global pandemic and here we are. Um, Did you, have you, where would you like to see this work go next and how can it be used in the future?
1: Yeah, I think with this type of genomic epidemiology study, which, you know, is the product of a, a collaboration across different institutions, it sort of sets a precedent and perhaps an example of how we can track individual lineages and sublineages which are circulating between provinces and between communities and also monitor which of these particular sublineages are contributing the most to the COVID-19 burden in order to allocate where our resources go to, where do we do our most of our contact tracing, et cetera. So overall, I think in terms of like the systematic type of changes that I would love to see would just be ongoing support. Uh, for public health surveillance programs, as well as sharing that data to public health researchers who would like to contribute to, um, you know, expanding our understanding of the pandemic dynamics.
0: Because it strikes me just even with the work you've done that that with the proper data, you have have a really good picture now of where, how things move, where they're coming from and how they're moving around. Information that you think would be invaluable should we face something uh, like the outset of the pandemic again in the future?
1: Absolutely. I mean, by studying these viral genetic sequences and how they are related to each other, we can reconstruct their past. We can build a family tree of how these viruses evolved. And in this tree also sort of pull out some of the different epidemic dynamics that were going on in terms of, you know, the rate of transmission and also the rate of importation of viruses into the country, or also on a different scale, you could also be looking at the rate of interprovincial viral migration. So it, I think there's a lot that can be gleaned from this type of study.
0: Uh, and, and in a nutshell, just just to go back to the beginning, uh, if you looked at what you found uh, in in layperson's terms, uh, and yet you had to advise policymakers about how they were to implement these from a public health perspective, obviously, um, what did you find? I mean, in a nutshell, what what did you find?
1: In a nutshell, travel restrictions are one of the effective tools that we have to reduce viral importations, but they do have a diminishing return if domestic prevalence of similarly transmissible sublineages is high. Um, So I think that, you know, considering all the different perspectives between public health, economic and social, policymakers should be ready to instate and repeal restrictions based on scientific evidence of whether they're effective or not, because, you know, although they do have an enormous, you know, societal cost, travel restrictions are a very clear way that we can sort of flatten the curve, if you will, to um, prevent the overburdening of our healthcare systems.
0: And in this case, also just knowing where that burden is coming from, uh, as opposed to letting politics or geopolitics, geopolitics get in the way of it.
1: Yeah, I mean, blanket bans where you know, travel is not re- allowed in or out of all countries, I'm not necessarily advocating for. I think that you know, in uh, an ideal world, all nations would have some form of genomic surveillance, even if that's like a random subset of sampling. And then we should, in theory, also be able to say, these are the geographies where we see a uh, new variant of concern or interest arising. And let's put in a temporary ban on travel to this area but if we have sufficient evidence to suggest that this ban is either not effective because this variant is widespread in other countries or already in Canada at a, a you know increasing rate then let's also be ready to repeal that restriction as readily as we put it forth
0: because one would imagine that with science as your background, with, with with science as your backup, it's easier to voice to make those decisions public than it is if you're if you're caught in some sort of political situation where you're trying to. Because what we found, I think, during the pandemic was it was easier to impose them to than to take them back.
1: Yeah, I think it was it was challenging in in both regards. But um, sort of to that point, improving communication with the public of how these policies are being informed and improving the transparency of the justification, I think would go a long way towards sort of like encouraging uh, the public's trust of the policymakers and, you know, health officials and maybe generate a little bit more um, support for having these restrictions for a temporary time if they also know what the criteria are for putting them in place and, and re- repealing them. Because a lot of the time it seemed like those criteria were a little bit obscure and um, it was hard for the public and even for myself as somebody who knows a little bit more to, to navigate what is driving these decision-making. And, you know, it's uh, definitely a lot to be learned in that regard.
0: Angela McLaughlin, thanks so much for your time tonight.
1: Thank you very much for having me.